if you're trying to figure out what this looks like, it also kind of looks like a short foam roller. Yes. You know, if you ever like work down to a foam one. roller, it's like a foam roller, but they've like cut these gigantic holes out of the top of it. So there's like these three giant holes that you can stick beer cans in, in your foam roller. And it comes with a strap for your carrying pleasure. Of course, because it's so hard to carry three beers yeah. by your hand. <laughs> My God. But this keeps them cool. Hey everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch some of the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Hey everyone. And John. How's it going? Today, we're talking side hustles. We've got three gadgets that began as a dream and grew into fully-fledged businesses. Not always the most successfully, but we'll unpack what it means to make this big entrepreneurial jump and what it means to be successful at it. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. So first up in the tank, we've got Lord Von Schmidt. Yes, that is the brand name. And it comes to us from Skylar Ellers. So Skylar comes in wearing this like rainbow frock with this ruffled shirt and these cheetah print sunglasses proclaiming to be the inventor of the hottest fashion trend on the internet. And Skylar's talking about how, you know, crochet takes us back to a simpler day when things were groovy and vibes were all positive. And he kind of introduces us to our product, which is the Lord Von Schmidt fashion line. The fashion line entirely made out of yarn. It's a crocheted fashion line that's colorful, sustainable, recyclable, and repurposed. And he says those about a thousand times throughout the pitch. Jerry, that's why I assume he says it's the hottest fashion <laughs> trend, because it's actually quite warm. These <laughs> clothing items are quite warm. Clothing items made of yarn that, you know, we'll talk about the demographics in a bit, but it seems like really kind of aimed towards like to wear to festivals, which tend to happen in like hot climates. Yes. And it's yarn, right? Like it's fabric. And granted, it's crocheted, right? So it has holes in it. So maybe there is some breathability, but definitely interesting. He's asking for a $100,000 for a 10% stake in Lord Von Schmidt. So that shakes out to about a million dollar valuation. It's underwear and pants and tops and jumpsuits and it's whatever uh, you want it to be. It's cloth yeah. parasols that are all made out of yarn. They're all made out of your grandmother's old <laughs> Afghan. Grandma would approve. He's cut them up and he's sewed them into underwear and sweaters. Most of them are uh, definitely low cut. They're very revealing. Yes. They're quite naughty, if you will. <laughs> they are quite naughty. Imagine, listener, if you will, tie-dye sweater short shorts yep. or like pinata pants made out of yarn. That's mm -hmm. what we're talking about here with Lord Von Basically, Sch it's a line that is, tell me you go to Burning Man every year without telling me you go to Burning Man every year. I mean, even the non-clothes products that he offered, that LED parasol, like, that's something you would wear out to the playa. Like, that's sick. So 100% towards that, like, festival-goer audience for sure. Are you going to wear sweater shorts out there in the <laughs> desert? That seems too hot. I feel like Damon kind of hits on this, though, and it doesn't get emphasized enough. For crochet clothes, I don't feel like it's really stretchy for all types of body types. Mm. So for myself personally, I don't see it expanding my own wardrobe, but I could definitely see people wearing this at, like, a festival type event. That's something we visually see, right? Because mm -hmm. as... The 
this pitch kind of comes to a close, he starts passing out like different pieces of his clothing line to the sharks. And uh, they all try it on and we get this fun montage of the sharks like posing. Yeah. And it's, I think, Mark that tries on a pair of pants and they just like do not come up at all. (laughs) So he's just like kind of waddling around with these half on crocheted yarn pants. This is one of my absolute favorite moments in Shark Tank history is the Lord Von Schmidt Shark Tank catwalk session where all the sharks put on different items of crocheted yarn clothing. They all put on essentially, you know, short shorts made of yarn and start strutting. And what's amazing about it is they're all yelling out at each other. They keep going like, that's so hot. (laughs) That's so hot. And Damon was feeling it. Mm -hmm. He was like strutting. Okay, like let's talk about the viability of this as a long-term business and a product. We start to get a little bit more information about what's going on behind the scenes of this like very colorful business. So as we dig into the backstory, it seems that these initial pieces of clothing were indeed like repurposed Afghans from thrift stores that the founder put on their Etsy and it sort of started to create what he calls like a publicity boom among like bloggers. Ultimately is like outsourcing this to China, getting them shipped back over. It seems like he's getting like the designs knitted in China and then coming back to the U.S. and creating the items himself. But once we started digging into the numbers, I think that's when those smiles from the sharks started to fade. Yeah. You know, I think Shiler as an entrepreneur is definitely one of those more creative visionary types. So I see this business really being more of a, hey, keep this as like a smaller business. You want to carry your ideas out to fruition. Maybe you don't necessarily need to scale this. So I think just keeping that in mind with his numbers, what did he say? He had about 188K in four years. Mm -hmm. That's not the most lucrative or like primed opportunity to scale up, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, Jory, at the beginning of this episode, your lead-in was about some people who'd built businesses, and I regret to inform you, Lord Von Schmidt is not actually a business. Uh, <laughs> maybe it could be a business. Definitely feels like a... It's a mom-and-pop business. It's a mom-and-pop sure. side hustle, yeah. for sure. Let's just talk about it a little bit. I think he's got a little bit of an issue, and that issue is that he's actually trying to tap into something that's called the slow fashion movement. And this is something that kind of was a ripoff of the slow food movement and is, in the case of fashion, a reaction to companies like Zara and H&M that essentially produce extensive amounts of waste, huge ecological cost of their supply chains and their production, and in the quest to sell like really just low quality goods at low, low cost, create an exceptional amount of waste. And so this movement is spun up called the slow fashion movement. It's meant to have a more local approach, more transparent production system, more sustainable and sensorial products. But he's got an issue because the product he's actually making isn't for a slow fashion use case, right? Like he's producing something that people would typically turn to fast fashion for and expect a fast fashion price point on, which is like, I want to wear this like really outlandish knit tie-dye pinata underwear (laughs) or onesie to the desert for a week. So he's just got a problem there because he needs to be pricing this at a much, much higher price point. I don't know. He's selling it for like under $100 most items. Shorts are $60. Uh, Parasol, he sells for $128. A suit for $300. Like he needs to be way, way, way up on that if he wants to truly be a slow fashion business. And in order for him to get slow fashion consumers to pay that sort of price, you need to get a lot of reuse out of that item. And I think that's actually the fundamental conflict he has is he's produced a novelty item 
But his pitch to consumers is this is slow fashion and ultimately you're going to have to pay a lot for it. And I just think he's going to have a real problem bridging that gap. I agree with you on the price. He definitely should be charging way more. I disagree that it's a novelty, one-time fashion that folks are looking to fast fashion solutions for similar things. I actually follow a lot of like fun fact, like circus arts performers on Instagram, mm. just because like I have an interest in that. And a lot of the, you know, more often not females will wear like these crochet tops or crochet mm. bottoms that they'll easily like be a brand ambassador for. And they're retailing at around like 65 to like $80. So I think the audience is there. And when you think about, especially the LGBTQIA plus and like festival audience, like a lot of people spend a lot of money when they go to festivals on their outfits, even if they only wear it one time. Like, I think that's one of the newer phenomena as folks are very focused on what is the visual image I'm representing? Is this the right aesthetic, the right style? So I actually feel that folks will pay more for like a one-time use thing, especially if they know it's like handmade, handcrafted and sustainable. That could be. And this is what I wish we got to see more of. We never really understand what is the capital for? And I think that would have been really interesting to know. Is it to further, you know, marketing and publicity and to keep your business small and to reach that audience? Or is it really to be the next Shein or Zara? Like, I think having that fundamental understanding of what was the use case would have been helpful here. But I don't see it being like a full scale company. I think a lot of the audience here likes to buy things knowing that it's organically sourced. They know who the person is. They know that they're buying mm -hmm. something that has a mission and a drive behind it. And I think this is also a situation where a founder came into Shark Tank with like novelty, right? He had a lot of color. He had a lot of models. He had a lot of fun. But when they started to really question, if we're going to give you an investment that is basically the equivalent of 10 years of your current sales, like if it stays continuous, what are you going to do with it? And I feel like the founder kind of froze. Yeah. It mm -hmm. didn't sound like he had a plan beyond what he was already doing. And I think that he didn't really have answers as to like what the next step was beyond making more crocheted thongs. I like how one of the sharks followed up with, okay, how many sales has this had? And I think you said like 10 yeah. <laughs> actually sold yeah. 10. <laughs> but I think this is a case where you do need more of that business partner. And I feel like when you're an artist and you're very like creative, your brain is really optimized towards that design element, but the business stuff just doesn't come as naturally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He needs a business partner who mm -hmm. wants to scale this thing for him and, and help him figure out all the logistics so he can just be an amazing artist and build really unique clothes and, and do all that. Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting like suggestion for Mark is to sell it as artwork versus just like another piece of fashion that you could pick up on Etsy. Yeah. This was a situation where I think the product wasn't something the sharks could immediately see as investable, but they really liked this founder. So you get this kind of nugget from Mark that's like, sell this as artwork. That's what I do. And then you get this also very wholesome moment from Damon, who was like, you know, when I reached a certain point in my career, I knew I was never going to work for someone again. And that's what he said. He was like, yeah. I see you as someone who will never work for someone else in their life. And like that, I feel like was potentially the most wholesome thing mm -hmm. I've ever heard come from a shark. <laughs> yeah. But Damon also was uh, saying that he reached that point after selling like 800 hats on a street corner in a day and Skylar sold 10 thongs in a <laughs> summer. So there are slightly different points there. And the truth for someone like him is unless he really wants to build a huge business on this and make a bunch of hard choices, he shouldn't take the money. 
because any shark that gives money to him is going to expect to get it back 10 times over, which means instead of selling 10 thongs, he has to sell 100 thongs, which may not seem like a lot of thongs. A lot of holy thongs, a lot of to, thongs uh, <laughs> to distribute. <laughs> and the truth is, as soon as you take an investment from an investor like the sharks, like it puts you on a path that you may not be happy with the consequences of because your goal now becomes, I need to 10x the size of my business so I can 10x the return that that investor got. And that more often than not is not a creative endeavor. That is right. a pure business endeavor. So it kind of puts you on a forced path that I'm not sure Skylar necessarily wants to be on. Yeah. Okay. So we have one more problem. Why is your company called Lord Von Schmidt? Spoiler alert, we never found out why the company was named that. So I could think of a million different names for this brand, but I was curious if either of you had come up with some alternatives when it comes to branding, because this one just felt so random. There was no clear connection, and then nobody brought it up ever again. Yeah. Well, I think the Lord Von Schmidt name, I started out not liking it. I thought about it a lot too, and I actually, I really love it. You know, my first thought is like, oh, what is this, some sort of like stuffy upscale, like British brand off Seville Row or whatever. And it is like the complete opposite of that. And so I kind of <laughs> like that juxtaposition right off the bat. Mm, the okay. second thing, it's a three word name. It's like a stupid fun name. I come around to the fact that I actually really like the name Lord Von Schmidt, and I'm not sure that I would change Interesting. it. Interesting. <laughs> How much of that do you think is influenced by like Von Dutch? This rolls off my tongue more than it should. And I could mm -hmm. see like having an LVS like shorts, I guess. <laughs> but LVS sounds like something you need cream for. So like we, we wouldn't want to like shorten it like to that. <laughs> I think you could either go full like puns and be like, holy Schmidt, because oh, they're holy like, like crochets. I only go for puns because I think they're memorable. Ultimately, even though the Sharks definitely gave some really good advice, unfortunately, founder Skylar walked away with no set deal, but it's really gunning for growth. So its founder, Skylar, really took Mark's advice and has raised the prices. He has also expanded into tailcoats, overalls, and chaps, which, you know, when I first saw those pants, I was like, that is going to be the next evolution, especially for festival wear. Yep, you can get your chaps. As of February 2023, Skylar has over 3,200 sales on Etsy. So if you like Lord Von Schmidt enough to buy them, John, your short shorts are at uh, Etsy near you. <laughs> Someday I'll inherit my grandmother's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Waiting for the heirlooms. We're actually going to take a slight pivot because we go from like very much a passion project to our next product in the tank, which I don't know, I'm just a little skeptical where the passion is. Next in the tank is Chill Systems. Jory's already throwing ice on this product. <laughs> Right from the start. <laughs> Chill Systems comes to us. And again, we get this kind of a skit of a pitch, right? So first we get one of the founders come in and he's carrying this like portable beverage cooler. He's like, yes, this is Chill Systems. And then almost immediately after like kind of saying the name, we see the other founder running in and he's got like this big cooler that's flopping around and he's got this like ice bag, clearly out of breath, clearly meant to kind of show like a visual juxtaposition immediately between like, look at our product and look at the 
alternative. So Chase and Brian are coming asking for $150,000 for a 15% stake in their company, which shakes out to a million dollar valuation. And their differentiated cooler is this portable kind of three can or one bottle of wine cooler that's made from this sustainable freezing gel. A couple of points that they're really trying to hammer in with this pitch is, you know, it's inconvenient to stop at the store for ice. It gets messy. Why not just have your gel-based cooler It's like a purse with holes in it, or I guess it could be like a sideways beer koozie with holes in it. Um, Jory, it's a duffel bag hand purse hybrid. Right. That's what I thought. I wrote down duffel (laughs) bag. I'm like, this on the top. Yeah, same. (laughs) If you're trying to figure out what this looks like, it also kind of looks like a short foam roller. Yes. You know, if you ever like work down at a foam roller, it's like a foam roller, but they've like cut these gigantic holes out of the top of it. So there's like these three giant holes that you can stick beer cans in in your foam roller. And it comes with a strap for your carrying pleasure. Of course, because it's so hard to carry three beers yeah. by your hand. <laughs> My God. But this keeps them cool. So yeah, we have get this very basic name, Chill Systems, but we get this product that can hold, yep, three cans of beer. Though I know I'm kind of laying on the shade. Clearly my opinions are obvious, but what are your initial thoughts of Chill Systems? I couldn't move past the typeface. The Helvetica Mm. for everything, just Helvetica gone fishing, Helvetica shark tank. Like they need branding and marketing badly. Like they have the opposite problem of what our last founder had. They don't have enough of the creative marketing vision behind this. I thought I was bad, but dang. (laughs) It's honest. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, listen, if you thought Ariel was bad, here we go. (laughs) Bad premise, bad product, bad pitch. Wow. Okay. So, Their whole premise of this thing is that we're passionate about saving the world and saving the environment. And the way that we're going to do that is that we're going to make plastic coolers with gel in them. And that's the reason you should buy it, right? It's like of all the problems you could solve in the world related to the environment, the one I'm not super stressed about is ice waste. (laughs) Okay, that's just like not the problem I'm stressed about. There are big systematic issues facing the environment and ice waste is not one of them. But my favorite point was their comeback of, well, I mean, there is plastic in the actual product itself. And their whole reasoning was that only 9% of the ice bag actually gets recycled. That was their main competitor. At one point, their main enemy is ice bags. So it's just a bad premise. It's also a bad product. Number one, you've got to put this thing in the freezer the night before. Mm -hmm. Okay? If you forget to put it in the freezer, you're moving the barbecue a whole day. You're like, sorry, can we move the barbecue to tomorrow? (laughs) I forgot to put my cooler in the freezer. And then you realize after you put this thing in the freezer that it only holds three beers. At least make it a six pack. I don't know what we're talking about here. This is not a product at all. Their story was just not at all compelling. And so for those reasons, I'm out. Bom, bom. <laughs> but I think you bring up like such good points because it's like it felt like throughout the pitch, but then also like the shark's responses that they kept kind of grappling for like what the selling point was. You've got these two smart guys, one that came from Google doing sales, one that came from Apple doing finance. And they're always trying to be learning, right? So that's a great aspiration to never kind of plateau in your daily life, but that doesn't sell coolers, right? So that wasn't really compelling. And then it was like, you know, this is going to help you not have to lug all of these drinks around, but then it doesn't solve for having enough drinks for potentially more than yourself uh, (laughs) if you take it to the barbecue. And then, yeah, there's this environmental kind of side of it. 
And they had mentioned that they're like donating a portion of each purchase to clean water projects because you're wasting water with your ice. But then it was made of plastic, which is very environmentally unfriendly. And their justification was like, well, it's built forever. And it's like, yeah, that's why people hate plastic. You're hitting on a point, Jory, which is they have a bad premise, a bad product and a bad pitch. And they're trying to make up for it with cause marketing. Mm -hmm. And I think Daniel hits that. Yeah, they're trying to say, but you should totally buy this bad cooler because there's a cause associated with it. And don't you associate with that cause? And therefore, shouldn't you just buy this subpar product? I think there's a lot of really successful examples of cause marketing in the world. Like Ben & Jerry's is an incredible cause marketing company. They launch flavors just to support causes. Plus they give a big percent of their profit away. Tom's like was a huge pioneer in this like buy one, give one model of cause marketing. And it got me thinking about like, when does cause marketing work or not work? The problem is cause marketing only works if the product is actually good. And then the brand actually really has to represent much more than itself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they didn't represent that at all in the way they told their story. And so the cause kind of has to be like the encore, not the main attraction. And I think when there's a great cause encore associated with a brand that happens to be a really great brand with really great products, it becomes a kicker, but not the reason people do things. And the fact that it doesn't cost $37 to make it is also uh, probably a determining factor for success, which I think they go into as well as that they have not been profitable. Yeah, that part of the segment had like a really strange tone. I think it was Brian that was like, yeah, our product costs are awful. Mm -hmm. It sounded like kind of like a, a self-defeating kind of joke, but it was something that I think it was Kevin that like locked onto and was like, don't ever say that during a pitch to a potential investor, like ever. <laughs> he could have said, hey, just straight up, this is what our cost is. I'm having challenges in X, Y, and Z areas. Mm -hmm. My goal is to get to this cost. And I think I can do that in some of these areas. Throw in a little, this is why I need your help or your expertise at the end. And you can change anything into a more positive story that way. So I think this was where the pitch started breaking down. Ariel, you need to go coach these people. You'd be incredible. Thank you. I work in marketing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. What great advice. So as we think about how these sharks were reacting, Kevin called this the siren on the rocks, right? Where it's like you've got two really smart, successful founders who left really successful jobs where they were arguably making like a lot of money to like go into this side hustle business. And I think at one point he was just like, I'm not trying to rip you to pieces, but you have to stop this. This is a bad idea. And I was curious, what is like your take on when a side hustle should never be your main hustle? Unlike our first product, which was like very clearly a passion and something he would have done regardless, essentially two very successful people left their jobs to pursue a cooler that was subpar. Jerry, this is a great question. I'm not sure there's any perfect advice because every person needs to make a decision for themselves about mm -hmm. whether to go into entrepreneurship based upon their life circumstances, what they aspire for in life. And the truth is, many times becoming a great entrepreneur requires failure. And so like these guys could say like, we desperately want to be entrepreneurs. We don't want to work for somebody else. We want to work for ourselves and we are going to keep at it until we find success. And if this chill systems cooler doesn't work out, we're going to move on to the next thing. And like, that's kind of fine. Like sometimes that's the path that people go on. You know, if your goal in life is instead to be financially secure and to minimize the amount of risk that you take on, then you should be sure that you have enough traction with your product or your side hustle that it could support you at the level that you need and that you have enough savings backed up for it. 
It's hard because it depends what anybody's personal goals are. Mm -hmm. And it really is just such a personal decision, I think. But ultimately, Chill Systems ended up with no deals. Unfortunately, Chill Systems is no longer keeping it cool. Their website and socials went dark in late 2021. And I feel like that's such a sad phrase, like they went dark. But the coolers are also no longer available on Amazon. So according to one of the entrepreneur's LinkedIn pages, the company ceased business in January 2022. So rip Chill Systems, womp womp, no longer a company. All right. So another thing that we've mentioned in past segments is like this idea of when the product starts to gain enough traction, maybe that's the time to turn it into a successful main business. And I actually think in our next product, we see that come to life. So last in the tank is Step and Pull. Step and Pull comes to us from Mike Sewell, and he comes asking for a whopping $300,000 for 3%, which is a $10 million valuation, a point that all of the sharks are like, wowza. Step and Pull is like a lever. It's a hooked piece of metal that's attached to the bottom of a door. And the problem it's solving for is that, you know, you go to public places and you don't want to touch the germy door handles, right? Especially like coming mm. out of the bathroom, right? No one's got time for that. So the solution is this product that essentially attaches to the bottom of the door so you can use your foot to pull open the door and you don't have to touch anything that potentially the unhygienic public has made disgusting with their grubby hands. It's like a flat rectangle of metal. Mm -hmm. You screw it perpendicular on the bottom of the door. So it's sticking out and you add a bunch of jagged teeth on it. So your foot will grip it appropriately. And then you just hope you don't slip on some water and fall face first into it, I think. Sounds Um, about right. But that's what it looks like. It's just like sticking out. It's not an attractive addition to a door by any means. Have either one of you used a door that's had one of these installed? Because I haven't. It is such a game changer. I have never successfully. (laughs) There's a learning curve. I'm with Jory. I've tried. I'm such an idiot. I stand there and I'm like, I don't understand how I'm supposed to get my foot under here. No, it's on top. What do you mean under? I think the ones that I've used are under. Really? Yep. I've seen the ones that like you hook your foot under and it's never not made me trip and fall into the door and like close That's it. That's the thing. And I always end up like grabbing onto the door with both hands, <laughs> yeah. like to stop myself from falling. Exactly. Devil germs. But I've never done it with the one on top. And oh, interesting. Maybe we're actually just functionally using them wrong. And like all the founders of these competitors are like, oh my gosh, it's on top. This is Scrub Daddy part two. <laughs> when I learned live on this podcast that I just didn't know how to use a Scrub Daddy, which is why I thought it was so dumb. But this product is clearly for us because it's It seems like it's as simple as you step into it, pull, and the door just magically opens. And so, Ariel, when you place your foot on top of this piece of metal, like, do you have to, like, shimmy backwards? Yes, like, do you have to do, like, a move? scuffling motion with my feet that I'm, like, jumping back and trying to pull at the same time. But if I have too much momentum leaning back, I will fall backwards into the wet floor. It's a game changer for head injuries in a bathroom. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So the founder was like, what differentiates it is the teeth, right? And, you know, I enjoy my boots. I'm an invest in your souls kind of person. But I was really worried when it started talking about like teeth. I was like, is that going to like actually damage my shoe? Mm. I don't care if it's sneakers and things, but like some of my nice shoes, it's like, give me the doorknob. I'll take the germs. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'll take the germs. 
But this was an interesting pitch because this wasn't a new product by any means. So by the time our founder is coming to the Sharks, they've been in business for 13 years. And the first five of those, it sounded like they really didn't make any money, right? Like they had sold as much as like 35000 And it was really the advent of COVID, which no one really could have predicted that saw this kind of enter the mainstream and almost overnight start to generate like millions of dollars. Yeah, I think they said 1 million in March alone in 2020, and they were approaching 7 million in sales. And 75% of their sales came direct from site, which is huge. Yeah, they have stumbled upon something that met the moment absolutely perfectly, and they have a great margin on it, and they're not paying a ton for distribution in order to get those sales. So I think they probably had an amazing you know, 12 to 18 months of sales and is the best it will ever be for them. And they will never come anywhere close to it again. I think that's fair. My question is for both of you, would you both invest in this? Like I can't get past the 13 years. I'm not completely sold that I would invest in this because it is such a short duration popularity that they will make sales in. And given the majority of their lifetime, they haven't really been successful up until now. Yeah. It doesn't really seem very sustainable. It's a great question, Ariel. Like what would you need to believe to want to invest in this company? Number one, you would either need to get a really great deal versus the revenue they have such that you're like, well, you know what? They have enough of a brand and they've sold enough product that I can get in at a really good deal. So that'd be one reason you'd consider investing. The second is you would need to be convinced that this market was still growing Mm -hmm. a lot. And a third reason you'd consider investing would be you'd have to be convinced that they had some sort of competitive advantage or distribution advantage over others. Mm -hmm. I don't think they'll have the competitive and distribution advantage. I don't think that's going to happen for them. I don't think the market is actually going to keep growing. And so it really just comes down to if you can get a really good deal on it, which is why I think that's how the Sharks ended up approaching it is they were kind of like, well, if I can get like a much better deal on this, then yeah, okay, maybe I'll go in. And that seems to be where like Mr. Wonderful and others ended up actually trying to push for a much better deal than they were originally offered. Yeah, I think the 10% for 300K that Kevin came at was really fair given timing and everything else. But Lori surprised me coming in with a royalty, which I have never seen Lori do that before, which I completely disagree. This cannot be a consumer product. And I love how she was trying to spin it, but I was very shocked to see that come from Lori. Yeah, I think it was the exact reason Lori wanted it that I didn't. Exactly. I think the market is very finite. The businesses that would invest in a product like this probably already have. They've already done it. Right. And I don't see this as something that is remotely for private consumption, right? So you're looking at like businesses as your customers. And I just like couldn't wrap my head around the long-term success of this product. Like, yep, as businesses open offices, sure, you might get that one-time sale, but it's not something that like you can sell over and over again. And even if things like the International Door Association exist, I just couldn't see who the audience for this would be in the long run. We got a bit of a bidding war where uh, Damon and Kevin kind of got into it, ultimately ending with Kevin undercutting Damon mm-hmm. um, and offering a deal for $300,000 for 6% versus Damon's 8%. And after like some emotional close-ups with our founder, a little teary-eyed, if you will, he ended up sealing the deal with Kevin. So at least in terms of today's episode, this was the one that sold the deal. So we can make fun of the weird mm-hmm. little metals. It's but true. <laughs> yeah. They walked away with Shark Tank Tale. 
I mean, it's I walked in with $7 million in sales. They're not not a business, you mm-hmm. know? It's just a question of uh, whether they should take investment because they think they can scale at 10x or whatever based on the Sharks connections. So yes, Steppenpool is still a company, but the deal with Kevin actually never went through. Oh. It was a handshake deal? It was a handshake ah. deal. So nowadays, you can actually buy these at like Lowe's and Home Depot or even Amazon. And the company is now worth 15 to $20 million. So still growing. Hmm. Wow. Not very fast. I still struggle with how long they've been in business relative to like actually getting their time. Ariel, some success is worth waiting for. So I'm going to actually continue a segment that we started last week with the Golden Bites. So in terms of the Golden Bite, the winner of today's episode, who are you giving the Golden Bite to, whether that's Lord Von Schmidt, Chill Systems, or Steppenpool? I'm going to go with Lord Von Schmidt because I really do want an LED parasol. I'm not going to lie. And also just really loved like the founder. Seemed like a really cool creative visionary. I love a very personable founder. (laughs) That's my bet. I don't think you can give him the golden bite. You give him like the knit bite, like or the crochet bite. (laughs) The the golden bite bite has to go to an actually good business. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Ariel can give her golden bite to whoever Ariel wants yeah, to give her golden bite Yeah, don't tell me what to do with my golden bite. <laughs> Dang. Ariel, you're giving away like 24 karat gold here. He's going to melt it down to buy some Afghans from a thrift store and sew them into thongs. But okay. <laughs> I mean. I'm going with the Clever Lover. <laughs> no, I want to give it to the Clever Lover, guys. It's a great oh, name. Oops. <laughs> I would say that I would invest in your company if I could get a deal that didn't Forced me to invest at COVID valuation, but post-COVID valuation. Mm. But keep on going. Step and pull, guys. You can take that name. Clever Lover yeah. is here to <laughs> Story stay. just gave you a brand new branding opportunity. You are welcome. <laughs> Today's episode was written and produced by the brilliant mind of Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero. Are you following the show yet? Barbara, are you following? I'm out. (laughs) You know, she really is my favorite. You can follow and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe that's Apple Podcasts. Maybe that's Spotify. Maybe you're that one person in the world who still uses a Microsoft Zune. R.I.P. Wherever works for you works for me, baby. That's it for me, for real this time. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.